Okay, we're gonna go through compounds and stoichiometry. I think this is a bit of a heavier chapter, so let's jump right in. Okay, so there are something called compounds, which are pure substances composed of two or more elements in a fixed proportion. <sighs> a molecule is a combination of two or more atoms held together by covalent bonds, and they're the smallest unit of compounds that display their identifying properties. They can be composed of two or more atoms of the same element or of different elements, and... The term formula unit represents the empirical formula of a compound, and if uh, molecular weight becomes meaningless, then the term formula weight is used. Then there is atomic weight, which is a misnomer because it's actually a weighted average of the masses of the naturally occurring isotopes of an element, and not their weights. The same applies here to our discussion of molecular weight. It's just the sum of the atomic weights of all the atoms in a molecule, and then its units are the atomic mass units per molecule. And the formula weight of the ion, of an ionic compound is found by adding up the atomic weights of the constituent ions according to its empirical formula, and its units are also AMU per molecule. So then we have a mole. It's a quantity of any substance, like atoms, molecules, uh, equal to the number of particles that are found in 12 grams of carbon, 12 which is the Avogadro's number, which is 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd per mole. And one mole of a compound has a mass in grams equal to the molecular or formula weight of the compound in AMU. Then we have the mass of one mole of a compound, which is its molar mass, which is in grams per mole. It's not the molecular weight. That's usually used to incorrectly imply molar mass. Molecular weight is AMU per molecule, not grams per mole. So the number of moles of a sample substance is the mass of the sample in grams over the molar mass in grams per mole. Then we have equivalent weight, which is the concept of equivalence, which is uh, a source of confusion usually. Um, so Let's think about this. So equivalence is how many moles of the thing we're interested in, like protons, electrons, ions, will one mole of a given compound produce? It'll be like one mole of electrons, which is one equivalent, or two moles of electrons, two equivalents. So sometimes we need to work in units of mass rather than moles. Uh, we'll use the amount of a compound that's measured in grams that produces one equivalent of a particle of interest called the gram equivalent weight, and it's the molar mass over n, where n is the number of particles of interest produced or consumed per molecule of the compound in the reaction. Then um, we think about equivalence and the formula for it, and it's the mass of the compound in grams over the gram equivalent weight in grams. And then we can introduce the measurement of normality, which is a measure of concentration given in the units of equivalence per liter. And it's used for hydrogen iron concentration. Uh, so then we look at molarity and it's normality over n, where n is the number of protons, hydroxide unit, ions, electrons, or ions produced or consumed by the solute. So equivalence and normality help because it allows a direct comparison of the quantities of the entity that we're most interested in. And then we'll think about how we represent compounds. So there's something called the structural formula, which is the skeletal representation of a compound, and it shows the various bonds between the constituent atoms of a compound. And then we have the law of constant composition, which is any pure sample of a given compound will contain the same elements in an identical mass ratio. 
Then we have the empirical formula, which is the simplest whole number ratio of the elements in the compound. And the molecular formula gives the exact number of atoms of the each element in the compound, and it's a multiple of the empirical formula. Then we have percent composition of an element by mass, which is the percent of a specific compound that's made up of a given element. You use the formula mass of element in the formula over molar mass times 100%. Um, you can use either empirical or molecular formula, or you can determine the molecular formula given the percent composition and molar mass. Then we will look at classes of chemical reactions. So combination reaction has two or more reactants forming one product. Formation of water by burning hydrogen gas in the air is an example of that. So it's A plus B yields C. Decomposition reaction is the opposite. It's a single reactant breaking down into two or more products, usually as a result of heating, high-frequency radiation, or electrolysis. So A yields B plus C. Um, then we have combustion reaction, which is a special type of reaction that involves a fuel, like a hydrocarbon and an oxidant, which is oxygen, usually. And these reactants form the two products of CO2 and water. So it's, yeah, like just combustion. Then we've got single displacement reactions, which occur when an atom or ion in a compound is replaced by an atom or ion of another element. And they're further classified as oxidation reduction reactions, which we'll go into later. And then we have double displacement reactions, which are called metathesis reactions, where elements from two different compounds swap places with each other to form two new compounds. And this occurs when one of the products is removed from the solution as a precipitate or a gas, or when two of the original species combine to form a weak electrolyte that remains unassociated in solution. Then we've got neutralization reactions, which are a specific type of double displacement reaction in which an acid reacts with a base to produce a salt and usually water. Um, these aren't always visible reactions, so you have to add an indicator or use indicator strips to make sure that the reaction has occurred and when it occurred. Um, so speaking of chemical reactions and their equations, we're going to look at um, how much and what types of reactants must be used to obtain a given quantity of product, and we use the laws of conservation of mass and charge. The mass of the reactants consumed must equal to the mass of the products generated, and one must ensure that the number of atoms of each element on the reactant side equals the number of atoms of the element on the product side. So stoichiometric coefficients, which are the numbers placed in front of each compound, are used to indicate the relative number of moles of a given species involved in the reaction. And that helps us balance the chemical reaction to ensure that calculations are performed correctly. Then we are going to look at how to apply stoichiometry. stoichiometry. Um, it will involve some unit conversions, and we need to follow the problem with clear and easy to follow methods by keeping track of numbers, calculations, and unit conversions. So some common conversions we have are like one mole of any ideal gas at standard temperature and pressure is 22.4 liters. One mole of any substance is 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd particles, Avogadro's number, and then one mole of any substance is equal to its molar mass in grams from the periodic table. And then think about um, limiting reagent. So really, our reactants added in the exact stoichiometric proportions shown in the balanced equation of a reaction. As a result, in most reactants, one reactant will be used up or consumed first. So this is the limiting reagent because it limits the amount of product that can be formed in the reaction. Reactants that remain after all the limiting reagent is used up are called excess reagents. And then... For problems involving the determination of the limiting reagent, make sure that you keep in mind that all comparisons of reactants must be done in units of moles. Gram-to-gram -gram comparisons are useless and usually like will cause problems. And then we have the 
fact that it's not the absolute mole quantities of the reactants that determine which reactant is the limiting reagent, rather the rate at which reactants are consumed. The stoichiometric ratios of the reactants are combined with the absolute mole quantities, and that determines which reactant is limiting. Uh, then we think about yield, so it's either the amount of product predicted, so the theoretical yield, yield, or that is actually obtained, so raw or actual yield when a reaction is carried out. So theoretical is the maximum amount of product that can be generated as predicted from the balance equation, assuming that all limiting reactant is consumed, no side reactants have occurred, and the entire product has been collected. Theoretical yield is rarely ever attained through the actual chemical reaction, and actual yield is the amount of product one actually obtains during the reaction. The ratio of the actual yield to the theoretical yield multiplied by 100% gives the percent yield. And I think this might be the last thing that we'll go over. But let me make sure. Yeah, so the last thing is ions. We have um, cations and anions, so positively charged versus negatively charged compounds. These ionic compounds are held together by ionic bonds, which rely on the force of electrostatic attraction between oppositely charged particles. Um, the nomenclature is based on the names of the component ions, so for elements that are metals that can form more than one positive ion, the charge is indicated by a Roman numeral in parentheses following the name of the element, so like iron is iron 2, copper 2. Then the older used method is to add the endings OUS or IC to the root of the Latin name of the element to represent the ions with lesser and greater charge respectively. So Fe2 plus is ferrous, cuprous, and then cupric and ferric. Then monatomic ion anions are named by dropping the ending of the name of the element and adding ide, so hydride, fluoride, sulfide, nitride, phosphide. And many polyatomic anions contain oxygen and are called oxyanions, and when an element forms two oxyanions, the name of the one with less oxygen ends in ite and more with eight. So nitrite, sulfite, nitrate, sulfate. Um, so the lightest anions have the fewest oxygens, and the heaviest any anions ate the most oxygens. That's a way to remember it. Um, then we have extended series of oxyanions, where hypo and hyper are written as per, and that's used to indicate less oxygen and more oxygen. So hypochlorite, chlorate, chlorate, perchlorate. Um, so that's ClO minus to ClO4 minus, respectively. <laughs> Then we've got polyatomic anions that gain one or more hydrogen ions to form anions of lower charge, and the resulting ions are named by adding the word hydrogen or dihydrogen. And then you can also use bi to indicate the addition of a single hydrogen ion. So there's hydrogen carbonate or bicarbonate, HCO3 minus. And then we have H2PO4 minus, which is dihydrogen phosphate, or uh, that's also known as oh, not phosphoric acid. Well, think about that one. Um, then we've got some other polyatomic ions. So there's NH4+, ammonium, C2H3O2-, acetate, CN-, cyanide, MnO4-, permanganate, SCN-, thiocyanate, CrO42-, chromate, Cr2O72-, dichromate, and BO33-, borate. So then we've got ion charges. Um, they always will have charge. Some elements can have even uh, several different charges or oxidation states. Some of the charged atoms or molecules include the active metals, alkali metals, alkaline earth metals. Then we've got non-metals that form anions. And then usually all elements in a given group can form monatomic ions with the same charge. And for non-representative elements, there's definitely numerous positively charged states, and they don't need to be memorized. You can use a color of a solution to be showing the oxidation state. And look at that. So the trends of ionicity, as we've described here, are helpful but complicated because the many elements have intermediate electronegativity and are consequently less likely to form ionic compounds. 
Then we look at electrolytes. So solutions that enable solu solutes that enable solutions to carry currents are called electrolytes. The electrical conductivity of an aqueous solution is governed by the presence and concentration of ions of solution. And subsequently, the number of electron equivalents being transferred in such a system varies. So pure water has no ions other than some hydrogen ions and hydroxide ions that result from like auto dissociation, and it's a very poor conductor. The tendency of an ionic solute to dissolve or solvate into its constituent ions in water might be high or low. Solute is considered a strong electrolyte if it dissociates completely into its constituent ions and weak ionizes or hydrolyzes incompletely in aqueous solution, and only some of the solute is dissolved in its into its ionic constituents. So, yeah, now we'll go into the concept summary, um, starting off with molecules and moles. So compounds are substances composed of two or more elements in a fixed proportion. Molecular weight is the mass in AMU of the constituent atoms in a compound as indicated by the molecular formula. Molar mass is the mass of one mole, Avogadro's number, or 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd particles of a compound, usually measured in grams per mole. Gram equivalent weight is a measure of the mass of a substance that can donate one equivalent of the species of interest. Normality is the ratio of equivalents per liter. It's related to molarity by multiplying the molarity by the number of equivalents present per mole of compound. And equivalents are the moles of the species of interest. Equivalents are most often seen in acid-base chemistry and oxidation reduction reactions. Then we've got the representation of compounds. Law of constant composition states that any pure sample of a compound will contain the same elements in the same mass ratio. The empirical formula is the smallest whole number ratio of the elements in a compound. The molecular formula is either the same as or a multiple of the empirical formula. It gives the exact number of atoms of each element in a compound. And to calculate percent composition by mass, determine the mass of the individual element and divide by the molar mass of the compound. Then we've got types of chemical reactions, so combination reactions, two or more reactants combined, decomposition, when one reactant is chemically broken down into two or more products. Combustion is when a fuel and an oxidant typically oxygen react and they form water and CO2 if the fuel is a hydrocarbon. We have displacement reactions when one or more atoms or ions of one compound are replaced with one or more atoms or ions of another compound. Single displacement reactions occur when an ion of one compound is replaced with another element. Double displacement reactions occur when elements from two different compounds to replace it with each other to form two new compounds. Neutralization reactions are those in which an acid reacts with a base to form a salt and usually water. Chemical, ooh, sorry. Chemical equations must be balanced to perform stoichiometric calculations. Balanced equations are determined using the following steps. So balance the least common atoms, then the more common atoms like hydrogen and oxygen, and then charge if necessary. And then balancing equations can be used to determine the limiting reagent, which is the reactant that will be consumed first. The other reactants present are termed excess reagents. Theoretical yield is the amount of product generated if all the limiting, limiting reactant is consumed with no side reactions, and actual yield is typically lower than theoretical yield. And percent yield is calculated by dividing actual yield by theoretical yield and converting to a percentage. And then with ions, um, like organic chemistry, ions in general chemistry have a system of nomenclature. Roman numerals are used for non-representative elements to denote ionic charge. OUS endings can also be used to indicate lesser charge, while IC endings indicate greater charge. All monatomic anions end in IDE, and oxyanions are given a suffix indicating how oxidized the central atom is. Those that contain a lesser amount of oxygen are given the suffix it, and those with a greater amount are given the suffix eight. Oxyanion series with more than two members are given an additional level of nomenclature. The species with the fewest oxygens is given the prefix hypo, and the species with the most oxygens is given the prefix per. Polyatomic ions containing hydrogen denote the number of hydrogens using hydrogen or bi to denote one, or dihydrogen to denote two. 
Magnetic charges are predictable by group number and type of element, so metal or non-metal for representative elements, but are generally unpredictable for non-representative elements. So metals form positively charged cations based on group number, and non-metals form negatively charged anions based on the number of electrons needed to achieve an octet. And then we have last but not least, electrolytes contain equivalents of ions from molecules that dissociate in a solution. So the strength of an, electro the strength of an electrolyte depends on its degree of dissociation or solvation. And that's where we'll stop for today. So we'll see you in the next one when we talk about chemical kinetics. Yay! Should be a pretty short chapter, I think. Bye, y'all.